Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I have to tell you something, people. I have a, uh, I have a new sponsor, this really cool people, this coffee company called Cafe Valet. And I'm going to tell you, you know, I'm only as hip as my guest, but I'm getting hipper. I mean, I've got a new single-serve coffee combo, combo from this company called Cafe Valet. Their brewers are inexpensive. There's little as $25 for a brewer and a 10-sample coffee packs. That's like $100 less than a Kiri. And they're just $20 when you use the discount code COOPER. So compared to the other single-serving coffee systems, you can save up to 100 bucks. With Cafe Valet, I get great-tasting coffee brewed in just minutes, just the way I like it, every time. Now, how's that for him? So don't forget, go to CafeValet.com and use the code COOPER and save even more. That's CafeValet.com and use the coupon code is COOPER and get this combo for 20 bucks, man. And it's really good coffee. Anyway. I could go for a cup right now. I know. You could. Then, you know, it's funny, people. I was talking to my guest today. He is actually, if you go to my uh, coopertalk.net, where I have, I think, like 468 episodes, he is episode eight. You know how long ago that is? That that's because what... when nobody else would do it, <laughs> I did... show up. Exactly. Right, baby? Exactly. You know so... why? Things aren't going that well for yeah, me. Exactly. I got a lot of free time. As, that's good. No, but it's so <laughs> funny that you were on because I remember I, you know, I was always a fan, and then we got to talking, and you know, we'll talk a little about how the comedy of Philly, but we want to get the set list. But it was it was funny because I hit you up, and I remember I had to go through your Susquehanna, Susquehanna hats, right? And and you came on, and I was like, wow, Paul Provence is on my show because people, this guy's this guy's like a comedy innovator. I mean, he's doing. Oh, you're very kind. I'm, I'm just saying though, you know, well, well, let's well, let's start off with. Set list because I want to talk about this because people he has he had this idea and he started talking about it like when you're in the beginning of my show yeah and now it's like it's it's international it is it's been it's been going nonstop for like four or five years now so tell the people what what set list is well set list uh, the original concept was created by the evil genius and the scourge of comedians worldwide Troy Conrad. And Troy came up to me one day years ago and he said, listen, I got this crazy idea for a show. I'd love for you to try it out. I said, well, what's the idea? He said, I write a set list and I give it to you right before you go on stage and you improv the set that goes with that set list. And I said, that is the worst idea I have ever heard in my life. I'll be there. Yeah. But, but so, <laughs> did, you, did you think it was bad? Or what? I, mean, I thought it was, I got both, both that it was horrible and brilliant at the same time. It's, as a comedian, it's the scariest thing in the world. Uh, but as somebody who is a fan of comedy and somebody who loves the process and everything, I also got that that is brilliant. So I went to do it, and while I was watching the few people who were on ahead of me, this was maybe like the second or third time that he had it up on its feet. Now, where'd you do it at? It, it was at the uh, Comedy Central Workspace here in Los Angeles at the Hudson Theater. Uh, and l- it was very different from, from how it is now. Um, but the the core idea of it was, was the same. And I was watching, you know, a couple of other comics trying it before me. And I was looking at the audience going, the audience is on the edge of their seats. This is like... I don't see this kind of energy in a comedy club normally. And, and I thought, that's really cool. Something really cool is happening here with the crowd. And then I went up and did a set list. And as I was doing it, I was like, I'm having an experience I've never had with an audience. So I, I quite literally, I did my last bit. I rapped and I went backstage and I went right up to Troy Conrad. And I said, Troy, this idea has got to be this experience has to happen to every comedian on the planet it's got to go around the world and i said someday it's going to be a television show and someone's going to screw it up i said would you do me the honor of partnering with me 
so that um, we can uh, really do something with this. And he said, I'd love to. So since then, we've been working together. I took it um, first, uh, myself and my producing partner, Barbara Roman and Troy, we all took it to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Now, this was how long ago? This was, this was like five years ago. So once you, once you had the idea and you said, I want to get on this, you sit there and you have to start building it up. And it's like anything. Comedy club people are just, they're, they're, well, not, they're not always... Well, see, here's the thing is that I immediately knew that I need to take this to Edinburgh. I, it was no doubt. Because I've been doing Edinburgh for like 15 years. Uh, whether it's doing my own show, bringing other shows over. I actually developed The Green Room, which ended up as a series on Showtime. I actually developed that at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And I, I found that the Edinburgh Fringe, while economically it's, it's, it's insane. I mean, you just can't make any money there. It's a fantastic laboratory because you get you do a show every single night, and you're in the same venue, and the audience builds over over the course of the month, and in a month you can do about two years worth of development on a on a project, uh, and you can respond immediately to ideas you have. Uh, uh, so we did it for the first month, and I also knew that the comedians over there would go nuts over it, and sure enough, within days the place every night was packed with some of the best comics in the UK. Some, some of the best comics in the world, really, who were at the festival. And um, we tweaked it. We honed it. We've, we really zeroed in on it. We changed it a lot over over that month to get it to where it is now, which is its simplest, purest form. Uh, um, and uh, we started taking it uh, on the international festival circuit, and we've been all around the world with it. Uh, it became a TV series in the UK, which we did for we did 14 episodes for Sky Atlantic, and we're in the process now of trying to get a TV deal here in America, which is a, a very frustrating. And and as a comedian, saddening experience. I would think you know not, it must be frustrating because you have a name, and I've seen the people you get to the shows. You get names. It's not like you're getting people no one's ever heard of. So I yeah, you know, on the UK series, we had Robin Williams. He yeah. loved doing the show live, which we do all the time in Los Angeles and and wherever it pops up else around the country. We do it in New York, San Francisco. Uh, we do it in Santa Barbara, actually, uh, as well as at the at the festivals around the world. But um, uh, the frustrating thing is this. There's a real prejudice against stand-up on television here in America. In the UK, we got a deal like that. Like within three months, we were negotiating a deal. So you, they knew of your show. You they, went, saw, they saw it at Edinburgh. And they contacted We you. went around, pitched it, and sure enough, they, you know, Sky Atlantic bit right away. Uh, and But over in the UK, there's stand-ups on television every day, every night in primetime. Uh, whether it's a stand-up performance show like Michael McIntyre's Live at the Apollo or specials or any number of other stand-up shows or all these panel shows or different formats that have stand-up comedians improvising on them. There's stand-up comedy all over television in the UK. Here, ask yourself, how often do you see a stand-up comedy performance? You know, why do you think that happened? Because I know, you know, back in the day when I started doing stand-up, I remember we would watch everybody. You would watch Evening at the Improv, and then there was Comedy on the Road. Then there was Comic right. Strip Live. Right, and then Showtime Comedy. And, yeah, and there yeah. was the HBO Young Comedian Special. Right, and Showtime and, had the, the, the Young Comedian Specials. And, and it, was, it was like an event. Like, I remember, you know, as a comic, you watch the HBO Young Comedy, and you'd be like, wow, 
oh god i want to get on that because and they sat there and they got and people talked about it what do you think happened i mean do you think it was i mean people because some people could say it's because of comedy central but comedy central mostly puts programming together on now comedy central has so little stand-up on it now and it's interesting because a lot of networks feel like as they particularly newer networks as they move into going into comedy uh you know a lot of them don't have comedy at the beginning and they reach a certain point in their evolution they want to get comedy um but they all say you know, stand-up is, that's Comedy Central's domain, and we don't want to conflict our identity with their identity. Well, Comedy Central really does very little stand-up. Exactly. They do a few specials, and the rest is is programming that actually lately has become really innovative and kind of odd. Um, uh, but there is this prejudice from networks about going into the stand-up arena, and I don't know why it is. I think it's because a sort of residual effect of the big comedy boom in the 80s and 90s, where it was ubiquitous and it almost was like you know if you had <laughs> if you had a network out of your garage you could right. do stand-up you know <laughs> uh so i think it kind of got a little bit of a uh um, l less cachet by having been so omnipresent on television and it was sort of you know the go-to for new cable channels which were just coming up in the 80s i'm not sure that's my theory but for some reason now uh actually i do know this there is something else about stand-up i know that um from talking to jay leno when he took over the tonight show i asked him i said jay how come you have so few comics on and he said the network asked for less comics the network said as they started tracking nielsen ratings by the by the 15 minute segments they noticed that whenever there was a stand-up on who wasn't a celebrity that you know the numbers dropped and then they came back up and the stand-up was off and uh so apparently there's this notion that people don't really want to watch stand-up or it's such a it's, it's a particular audience that wants stand-up and not as broad-based as they as they're reaching for but we keep trying to communicate to to them and we i don't i don't mean to suggest that no network has right. been interested in it but when there is interest, it tends to go to a place where people start to get very afraid. We have a few things in the fire right now that I'm keeping my fingers crossed for. But um, it, it says something about the way the TV industry still relates to stand-up particularly that is odd. Well, for me, I'll be honest, one of the things is... And I love stand-up. You know, I don't, I don't watch a lot of TV and stand-up because I know the people. You know, you know people. You, you, know, yeah. you know how it is. But, you know, my girlfriend used to always watch, like, Last Comic Standing, which is funny. Is Last Comic Standing, as you see as it developed, they brought more established comedians right, on right. because the normal person will see one episode of a person train-wrecking and flatlining, but you don't want to see that. And what gets me about, like, as I said with Setlist is, one, you know there's going to be attached names because people want to do it because it's fun. And it's different. But then you watch like a show like Game the Game Night on NBC, and right. people are sitting there watching celebrities play games. Play which charades, I right? have no interest. Yeah. I mean, something it just surprises me because the set list. It's like it's not like you're sitting there going, okay, we have the show and it's set list, and we have two open micers from Boston, two open micers from Philly, and they come in, and the winner gets to do a set at a club. No, it's like. Okay, I mean, you said Robin Williams did it in, yeah, in the last I mean, show. Yeah, people, Eddie Pepitone, people like that. They All these people yeah. were under... T.J. Miller, Kamel Nanjiani, Maria Bamford, uh, um, uh, Gilbert Gottfried, uh, Fred Willard, uh, you know, and a real nice array of, uh, of generations, too, uh, um, because everybody relates to it. And, uh, and in fact, it's very popular in Australia. Uh, it's very popular in... Uh, we, we have live shows running in Cairo, um, we're looking to get some going in China, where we have some contacts who want to do it there, uh, because it works in any language. Because the creative impulse is the same, and com uh, there's a comedy scene exploding uh, 
everywhere in the world a comedy scene is Except exploding. <laughs> it's really exciting. No, no, I, there's a huge comedy scene exploding here, which is what makes the way the TV business is looking at stand-up a little, even odder to me because there is a, a huge renaissance in stand-up. I'm seeing an unbelievable amount of fantastic original voices in comedy, just tremendous talent everywhere. Uh, I think there's m more and better comedy available now than I've ever seen in my lifetime, okay. for sure, which makes it odd. Like, I wonder why television isn't jumping on that bandwagon. They they are doing it in, you know, special form, you know, HBO and Showtime. Showtime's doing a lot of acquisitions. If, if somebody records a great hour, they'll, they'll, you know, do an acquisition deal on it. But um, in prime time, other than Showtime occasionally, HBO occasionally, and last comic standing, there is no stand-up. Yeah, you're right, and it's it's, it's crazy. unbelievable. It's, but people, I mean, as I said, I remember when I was younger, it was the same thing. It was like VH1 had every v, comedy. Uh, yeah. MTV had the half-hour comedy hour. Yeah. Every every station you could sit there, and you know, of course, the comics are complaining on. I got paid my four hundred eighty dollars for that, and they've showed it ninety-seven yeah. times. That was back in the days when if you had invested in a faux brick wall company, right. you'd be a gajillionaire just from stand-up <laughs> shows. It's so funny. <laughs> I, I mean, it's amazing. I went back to. Uh, Philly, and uh, when I was dating Joanne before she moved out here, and I hadn't done comedy for a while, but I was booking myself to do, you know, middle sets, feature spots, because right. I still, you still have fun, so I was like, oh, yeah. I'll do it, and I remember going, I did the comedy cabaret, which back when I started out, Andy Scarpati had like right. nine or ten clubs completely packed. That's right, all now, around that Baltimore, and, and Washington, D.C., New York, corridor, and yeah. Of, and, and it was a big Philly guy, and I was amazed, there was like, Two left, and then I remember the comedy works, which I'm sure you played. Comedy in works, absolutely. Well, the comedy works in downtown clothes, but they had the one still in Bristol that I was like, oh my god, I featured at this place years ago, got out of business, came back, and I'm featuring 15 years later. Yeah. But it's just amazing to see how the industry's changed in these cities where there used to be so many clubs. And then now there's like there's some that are just hanging out, but they have like two instead of nine. Yeah, and but what has happened in a lot of cities, in most cities, uh, what has happened is this alternative scene has popped up. And now, alternative doesn't mean alternative comedy. It doesn't mean like it's a different kind of comedy. Funny is funny. It's always been the case. It always will be the case, no matter what you call it. But what it is is alternative venues. Like here in Los Angeles, the alternative venues are much more interesting to me than a lot of the, the stalwarts like the comedy store and the improv and the laugh factory because odd stuff's going on and plus there's a different vibe like one of my favorite rooms here in LA is Nerd Melt where we do set lists by the way at least once or twice a month um, Nerd Melt is a little room in the back of Meltdown Comics on Sunset Boulevard which is right across from the uh, Guitar Center and uh, it used to be I think a little comic art gallery or something like that it's the best showroom in Los Angeles because there's no drinks. There's nobody selling food. There's nothing. People come in to watch and listen to comedy only. They don't come out for a nightclub experience. They don't, you know, and it's, they just they just sit there and just groove on the comedy, and it, it's great. So a lot of places like that have opened up in a lot of those cities, but you might not know them if you're not from that town. Right. You know, you wouldn't know where to look. Here in L.A., there's hundreds of fantastic little odd venues that I don't even know about, and I live here, and I'm in the business. 
um, they're hard to find. Uh, and but great, great stuff's going on. Like I'm sure there's some cool underground stuff happening in Philly. It's got to be. Oh yeah, there, I see it on Facebook. I see someone said I was back there, and he's like, "Hey, I'm, we're doing this show at this one place." Also, a lot of alternative formats have popped up. Like Setlist is one of these alternative formats where where comedians are doing something other than straight stand up or doing straight stand up with some sort of a challenge involved or a twist involved. Um, uh, lots of those kinds of shows. In fact, on the on the on the festival circuit, there's always two or three new ones every year, and they're just really interesting, and they really stretch comedians, and they make it more. It's you know, especially when you're doing a festival and you're doing you know five or six shows. These offbeat weird shows where you get to do something different are really they're energizing. Well, I think also it's an explosion of something of the storytelling shows too. Storytelling shows have exploded because yeah. I, I I've done a few of them, and it's you know, and coming from comedy. You know, you, you have, and we're, you know, the boom, boom, yeah. you know, and if you don't get yeah. that laugh, you know, the club owner's not going to bring you back. And then you go to a, I went to a storytelling, was at this great little place called Muse on 8th. It's a guy named Alex Stein books every Saturday he runs it. And you go in there and you, I didn't know what to expect because it was, you know, I, I'd done like, I had done story where the Christina Blackburn's show uh-huh. at, at uh, UCB or wherever it was, IO. And, but this, I was like, it's a coffee shop. And it was weird because the first person goes up and she's talking about, you know, a, she's telling a fairy tale. And here, my whole thing is about me have to find Indian Viagra when I had a heart problem. Uh, so I, it was cheaper, but it was it's amazing because people come out, and I think in a comedy club, people are more judgmental. It's something that they don't judge. I think they're going for an experience. They're not yeah, going yeah. to expect to get the laugh. Yeah, they've you know they've cultivated an audience for those shows. That's like okay, we know what this comedian does. We want to see in a different context. We want to see what they do in a different scenario. We want to hear stories about their personal life or or about their professional life, whatever. Um, uh, the, I think. The, I think the popularity of those storytelling shows is kind of a mix between um, uh, a sort of theater audience, uh, like places in New York, like The Moth was was one that really you know gained a lot of credibility right out of the gate. Uh, the Moth had a lot of uh, sort of artists and writers and, and and actors and performers do it. Uh, so there's that crowd, but then there's also the cr- the same crowd that listens to comedy podcasts, where it's just interesting. If you're you know if you're a Doug Stanhope fa- fan, it's interesting to hear Doug Stanhope do anything right and and i think that sort of combined to to create a a nice explosion of that that uh that kind of format now when you want to get settlers into different cities across the country worldwide mm-hmm. i mean what is that process just i mean because as i said it's I know it's a comedy boom, and I know you can bring names, but it's something so different that, I mean, you had, in America, it took a little while. I mean, how do you go about that? Like, let's say you said in China, you know someone, but how do you go pitch that? Well, what happens is, you know, on the festival circuit, um, uh, as I said, I've been doing Edinburgh for like 15 years, uh, various my own show, other shows, produce shows, develop shows, whatever. Uh, and I got to know a lot of people and, and I got to know how the festival works and how to deal with venues and what kind of venues are the right place for the right kinds of things. So putting it into Edinburgh was really uh, the beginning of it because once it caught on at Edinburgh, which it did immediately, uh, and you know, when all these big name comics were coming in and all the comics wanted to try it and, and, and there's a real energy there. And then we went to, so that, you know, from there, from the buzz there, Melbourne International Comedy Festival is like, oh, would you bring the show here? And, and you know, we did a sh- show at the Altitude Festival in Meyerhof in Austria, which happens in, this, in the mountains in a ski resort, which I think just wrapped this year. Uh, um, uh, we did the Sydney Festival. We did 
a couple of festivals in New York. We did we do the Riot Festival every year. We did um, we did the Winter Comedy Festival in Traverse City, which is one of my favorite festivals. We did uh, Bridgetown. We did uh, you know all these little festivals. They just hear about it and they're like, hey, can you bring it? And we're like, okay, how do we work this out? How do we make this happen? Uh, so the strength of the show really um, made a lot of that happen. Uh, and then as people get to find out about it, certain venues would say, hey, we'd love to bring you in for a special event night. Can you do that? Can you do this? So we really just, stuff just comes to you when you when you get out there and you're visible, but particularly with Setlist because the comics love it. It's a show that the comics talk about. Like, you, you know, a lot of these places wouldn't have even heard of it from audience members right. because they don't have that kind of... You know, they don't go to audience members and say, hey, what shows do you think are cool that we should bring in? But all the comics were talking about it. And then we got this YouTube series where we, we did 65 uh, episodes, just short, like five-minute sets uh, that we shot uh, at NerdMelt. We shot all around the world, actually. We shot some in, in Ireland. We shot some in England. We shot some in, in Edinburgh. Uh, and... Um, and so people get turned on to that, and they start to come to you. Uh, but Setlist is a rare phenomenon. I don't, I don't know that every show that's trying to establish itself uh, has it so easy that way. But this just, just comedians and people in the world of comedy get right away what's so fantastic about this show. And be, the fact that comedians love to do it means the audience is going to have a great time. So this actually came from the, the side of the, of, of the performers you know, talking about it and saying what a great show it is. And, and we've had some huge names do the show. And we had, you know, Tim Minchin did the show. He, he had just finished a, um, <laughs> he had just finished like a week at the O2 Arena or something bizarre. playing massive crowds right. in London. And then he came in to do it at the Soho Theater in a basement, with like, you know, 110 seats or something like that. And he was, he actually tweeted, he goes, I am more scared of doing this show than I've ever been of anything in my life. <laughs> and that kind of intrigues audiences too, you know. Now, how do you, how do you come up with a set? I mean, now you're sitting there, I mean, because, you know, it has to be a surprise. And I was thinking, I'm thinking maybe, is there any recycled ideas? Because, you know, there's so many ideas. I mean, how, let's say you're going to do a, a set. Let's say, okay. You say, hey, Cooper, come do set list. Like, okay, well, I can't study. It's not like Jeopardy. You know, you can look at yeah. the Well, that's idea. the thing about it is it's a Zen experience. You have to not prepare, okay. which is anathema to most comics. You know? Oh, yeah, because you're, always, to, going yeah, you're always going over something. You always have some structure or something in your head, uh, uh, something you can depend on. But this, you have to let go of everything, and you have to let go of outcome when you're doing it, too. You just have to let your talent come through and let it do what it wants to do if you get in its way you're going to suffer for it. It, it, it that's why it's such a such a challenging experience for comics because it's not about anything you know greater than how much can you not screw yourself up <laughs> where, where, where do you get the topics where do you get the ideas for this most of this most of the topics uh, are written by troy evil genius troy conrad uh, although we we focused in on certain formats and things like that, but here's the thing: is that uh, an average set list is five topics, and um, we look at it like a golf game. That each topic calls on a different club in the in the bag. Each topic, like this one, this topic has been constructed to be just a straight shot down the fairway. You know, just maybe a simple premise that anybody can do something with. You know, the next topic might be like, oh, this is a bit of a dog leg. I need a different club for this. So you have to pull out all these different things from your toolkit, and we try and compose sets that ask you to to challenge yourself in different ways. Um, and that's one of the reasons that makes the show so exciting for performers because it's not like audience suggestions 
it's crafted by other artists. It's crafted by Troy, by myself, by Barbara, by some people that Troy works with, like Cody and uh, Hannah used to work with him uh, um, doing a lot of the topics. So they're they're actually really crafted. And the comics sense that. When you see some of the topics we have, you can tell that there's juice in there, but it's locked up a little bit. you got to pick that lock somehow, you know? Now, do you write, do you write though, the, the ideas for that certain comic? I'm not saying, I mean, when you know... No, 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 it's truly random, except that we'll sit around, um, you know, let's say there's five people on the show, and we'll sit around and just go, uh, you know, you know, I'm a big John Doerr fan. You know the way John works. Please let him do this one. I want to see him do this one. You know, that's the only extent to which it's not random. But it really, truly is random, and people don't. A lot of people do not believe that it's improvised. They believe that the comics prep or whatever. But it's nothing. The comic and the audience see these bizarre, surreal topics for this for the first time at the same time. So that's cool for an audience too, because they get the idea, and then their own minds are working on it or trying to figure out what anybody could do with it. And then the comic does their thing. And when you see a night of five or six comics all approaching these topics their own way, you get almost a masterclass in the comedy process because it's different for the comedy process is very different for almost every comedian right everybody's got their own individual way of doing things and you really get to see that work on set list you know if you see gilbert gottfried and then emo phillips and then eliza skinner you know and then matt kershen you see five different completely different approaches to comedy and it really is educational now you said bizarre topics. Yeah, they are really like, like, bizarre. Like, I mean, so it's it's so when someone goes in, it's not like you're not going to go and say, okay, cats and dogs. Like, what are some of bizarre topics? Like when you guys come out, do you well, just yeah, sit me, there and think? Let me do some from. Uh, yeah, I, I, I got some photos of, of some we did in a, a recent show. Uh, fill the time here while I try and get them on. Right. No, it's because no, it's just that people don't know. It's like the old the old thing was years yeah, ago. Like here's cats some, and dogs, and then yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but here's a, here's an example of. Uh, of uh, here's one that's like a straight shot down the fairway. It's just a premise that anybody could do something with. Uh, International Space Station roommate arguments. Okay. Right? Just a premise. Right? Anybody can do anything with that. Uh, but then here's another one. Uh, uh, Dwight Privilege. Where you got to really put elements in there. You know, you got you to gotta figure out how to take that concept... You say Dwight. Dwight privilege. So like someone yeah. could go on a round about Dwight Evans, a baseball player. They could do something. or any, Right. Okay. Right. Or or whatever. You know, they, they could end up talking about uh, a racist who has a speech impediment. You right. know, you, we have no idea what anybody's going to do with it. And then sometimes we'll throw acronyms like, you know, my grandma's, like my grandma always used to say, H-G-R-F-D. And the comic would have to make up whatever that stands for, you know. Uh, so there's all these different ways to to twist it around to give a comic a challenge that's different from the one he had he or she had before it's really fun now do you still do it i i i'm intimidated i have seen so many people do it that i am intimidated i've done it a few times i'm gonna get back and do it again but i was also inside it for so long you know i was i, I was on the other side of it like i worked very very closely with building the sets for the TV show and for some of the festival dates and for various, you know, things. Mostly Troy does it these days. Um, but I was so inside it that I felt like I, I couldn't even, I couldn't even do it, you know, because I was 
just right in it's, there, you know, with the gears and the and the bolts and the nuts. Um, um, but really, I'm just completely intimidated. Well, <laughs> it's, it's, it is. Well, why do you think you're intimidated? Because I mean, you you've done stand up just because I maybe know you're, just, you're so close to it. I'm or? telling you, it's always scary. It's always scary. It's what what a lot of comics say is it's the closest they've ever come to the first time they were ever on stage. Okay. Which is it's just it's very scary. It's really scary. Brain wreck. Because the thing about the difference though is, and you're, what we talked about pre- preparation is, you're true. When the first time you were in stage, you know, I remember me at the, it was at the Comedy Factory outlet, and you sat there, and I practiced. I was in my parents' bedroom in front of this big mirror, yeah. and I sat there, and I don't know why we practiced in front of the mirror because <laughs> no, we're not going to see each. Other. You know, you're, not, you're looking in the audience. Well, but, because there's no other way. There's no class. Right. There's no school where you could learn like you learn music, and that's one of the things about setlist that's so fascinating is i actually feel like you know musicians can play scales and that's just about improving their skill improving their technical abilities and this is like scales for stand-up comedy it's the closest thing that i can think of to it um uh but yeah when you're when you're starting out the, the only way you can learn there's only two ways that people get up on stage doing comedy the first is to practice in front of a mirror and get all the rhythms down and get every, you know, get the, the, the form down and, and the physical life down and do all of that practice work. And the other is to imitate someone else, which is what most comics do. When most comics start out, they're doing an imitation of the comic they want to be most like or that they feel the greatest connection to. I know when I started out, in fact, when I started out in the late 70s in New York, myself... Paul Reiser, Larry Miller, and a couple of other people. People used to say we all sounded the same. And it was largely because we were all doing some variation on Robert Klein. Okay. <laughs> you know, and then as time goes on, all that falls away and you become your own person. But but that's the problem with starting comedy is there is it, it's trial and error. And you have to use whatever methodology you can. Which is why now I think what's happening is a lot of young comics are seeing such a vast variety of approaches and styles and 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 and, and conceptual angles on comedy that that they have so much more to draw from. But you know, when I was coming up, it was like you, the comedians you saw on television and the ones you you listened to on records were the ones that you knew. We don't. We didn't know ten thousand comedians the way we can now. You know, right? And it's funny, as you know, as and when I was starting out, you know, the, I remember getting the, the cassettes. The, oh the yeah, I listened to a Cheech and Chong cassette every. It, it, as soon as it was, it just kept flipping over. Remember how cassettes would play oh, yeah. reverse in the car ride from New York to Florida and back? We listened to Los Cochinos the whole way there and back. Well, I remember the Emo Phillips one, and I always was so because it was so funny. Was with Emo Phillips, so it was you know. It was so different, and you think about, you know, we. I remember you remember Clay Harry. Sure. Well, he he was he had, he brought emo. I think he told us story about taking emo to get like coffee in a bad area of Philly. Of course, emo's in character, and you know yeah. that. But for me, it's like you think about <laughs> back then, and the difference between back then and now is if a character like emo went up now on a open mic or whatever, people would just go, oh, okay. But back then, I think about what hell he must have gone through in those early open mics because people going. What the hell is this guy? What is he doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there wasn't such a such a huge array of styles back in the day. But the flip side of that is emo could emerge as a distinctive voice very easily. Um, but I'm convinced that you, you know I say this about a lot of people, but emo, and I think even if Professor Irwin Corey 
showed up today at some alternative room, he'd be regarded as a genius in new comedy. You know, uh, uh, early Bob Newhart would be like revelatory now. Right. You know, so it never really changes. It's just what we get, you know, what we are aware of. Now, you went to Penn. Yes, I did. And you started, were you in the jailhouse, or whatever, the, was it the jailhouse? I had, done, I had done the jailhouse. Um, um, the Comedy Works was not yet open. I did the jailhouse. Uh, um, I would occasionally do Stars. Do okay. you remember Stars? No, I this is... Stars was by, um, owned by Stephen Starr. Uh, was kind of a music venue, kind of a you know rock venue, um, but they would have comedians open for acts a lot of the time. And there was a place called Grendel's Lair. I remember Grendel's Lair. Yeah, and um, um, the main point occasionally would have a comic come out. And um, I would get to see comedy at the Bijou. The Bijou, which seated maybe hundred maybe 130 people, right. that's where I saw Steve Martin. In fact, this is a great story. This was 1975, and uh, I was a huge Steve Martin fan. This was before he broke big. In fact, at the time, Johnny Carson wasn't a fan of Steve's, but they used to get so much mail whenever he appeared on the show that Johnny said, okay, well, you can have him on the show, but not when I'm on. So Steve okay. was appearing only with guest hosts because the audience just always asked about him. Um, and uh, nobody really knew who he was. He was very, very culty. And uh, I was in the front row uh, at the Bijou, this tiny little room, and Steve Martin did like, you know, an hour and 15, an hour and 20 and then he finished the first show and he said, listen, there's not a lot of tickets sold for the second show. So if you want to stick around, you can stay as my guest. It'll be a whole new show. And we all laughed thinking, yeah, of course, it's not going to be a whole new show. But I stayed because I wouldn't mind seeing the show twice. Well, sure enough, he did a whole new show. So we got to see like three hours of Steve Martin in one night in a little 130-seater that's amazing. You know, you think about it, you know, people, because, you know, the whole thing in comedy, everyone goes, oh, I got 30 minutes, I got, and they have like 10. But for someone to sit there and go do an hour, and I'm sure it was just as funny, the second show. Oh, yeah. Yeah, amazing. So what made you want to do comedy, though? I mean, you, you went to Penn. Now, what was your major at Penn? Uh, well, that's, that's kind of a long story. Because, well, Penn's not easy to get into. Uh, no, largely because you have to have a huge amount of money to right. go. Uh, I didn't. I did a lot of work study, had a lot of financial aid, uh, and I also didn't pay my last year's tuition. But that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> Anyhow, <laughs> um, uh, I thought I was going to go to law school. And so I first, uh, my major was philosophy. And then after a couple of years, I realized that this, it's not, <laughs> I can't do this anymore. It, it was just too it was two two and uh in the back of my head i always kind of you know wanted to do stand-up in fact i had started doing stand-up actually on campus um we were talking about these rooms in philly but back then um uh, i went to to penn at the same time that wayne cotter was at the electronics okay. school at penn studying computer engineering and uh various similar things uh and um Bill Grunfest, who uh, went on to write for Mad About You and a number of things, and m most notably, m the biggest thanks to him goes for starting the Comedy Cellar. That was Bill Grunfest. Uh, and uh, there were a few people at Penn who were interested in comedy, and we found each other. And so we started to do, um, we started to put together our own shows on the campus, but such a huge school right. that that's a big market. It was like 25,000 kids or something like that. So we would do shows in dorms you know we'd put a show up in this dorm and then a show up in that dorm and and um and then i ended up 
this was 1975 and 76 when the drinking age was 18. So there was a Rathskeller at the university. There was an actual bar nightclub in the we had one of my my right i went to a small school in new jersey richard stock yeah. university and we had like four or five thousand students and it was the campus was all connected in the middle of pine barrens but there was the rascal the rat like yeah. you, you said there's the bookstore yeah and there's a rascal and there was so beer by the yard oh, yeah it was big <laughs> big glass yards on the wooden frames and it was crazy right it's hard to believe that that was college but um i ended up with a steady gig every saturday night doing material for them so um uh, i would do a show every saturday night in the rascal for you know about a year and um try out new material every week a lot of it was about the university a lot of it was inside oh, yeah. stuff your own experience whatever but you know i'd eke out five six seven minutes of, of general generally you know appropriate material uh, each week so by the time i went to the improv to really give it a go uh i actually had more stage time than just about anybody else that was auditioning because it wasn't as ubiquitous as it is now so a lot of people were just the only time they got on stage doing stand-up was on open mic night at right. the improv you know so um that was a great experience um but yeah so so we just sort of created our own situations we just started putting shows up and and we, we'd mix them up and bring in these weird variety acts and things and they were it was a great experience really great experience Do you ever think back now to think that if back then there was social media like it was how uh, your shows because you think about uh, it i mean you have no idea in, how in comedy in, in like in the philadelphia comedy scene you'd open up the daily news and the inquire and they'd have the list they'd have like the list of you know it's comedy and have small blurbs and when your name was in that when you start off you're all excited it'd be like comedy works going bananas comedy fight. and then it would just be small say showtime and that was the that was it the marketing it wasn't like i mean on facebook i swear to god i said sometimes i go and i look and i see like these flyers and there's like 15 people and i always say to myself well when i started out 15 people with no one getting paid was an open mic it wasn't a show <laughs> you know what i mean but i mean what do you think how do you think you uh, it would have changed you think at Penn it would have changed i mean because no now, totally I mean, it's, it's, that was it's just grass you were doing grassroots stuff yeah yeah we were yeah yeah um uh what social media has done i think for for all arts not just comedy but of course my focus is comedy so i see it most pronounced there but it, it's just incredible you know you used to have to go on the tonight show to reach what is it 15 20 million people to get the 200 people you wanted to come and see you in chicago in two weeks you know now you can actually just write to them right. <laughs> individually you know and that's fantastic one of the great things aside from the from from how widespread and and how how much more easily you can get your word out there on social media it, it, what i think is fascinating is the relationship that has changed between the comic and the audience like you know doug stanhope's a great example if you go to see doug stanhope his fans are like a big giant family they they half of them know each other they you know they do things like uh oh, doug is playing in in portland and I, I would come across the country if somebody could put me up and they'll say yeah you can say you can stay on my couch you know and there's like this they know everything about him they listen to his podcast they follow his twitter feed and his facebook they know his personal life they know you know it's it's like they have a relationship now with a performer that is very very different from what the audience performer relationship used to be in comedy and i think it's really exciting i think it's it it, it demands authenticity when people you know use it right when when people are in the 
the kind of situation that a Stanhope is in, and and that authenticity breeds, you know, an even stronger bond. Uh, um, it means that you know, comedy has become like music in that we're all an indie band. Right. Each one of us is now an indie band. Well, you're fun, and you're right in that fact, and it's also I always compare it to the merch. Like the only people yeah. who, like back when I was doing comedy, the only people who had merch was Big Daddy Graham out of Philly. He would <laughs> he would sell albums after it, and as comics were like, first of all, we're like. How do you and he because he did singing stuff in his act, but we're right. thinking like how do you how do you even make an album? Like it wasn't like now. It was like if you wanted to make an album, well, no, you had to put out vinyl. Yeah, and yeah, and you had to and it cost money. Yeah, and, you had to have a record deal. Yeah, and so I mean it's amazing now. Like I talk to comics, I mean it's like they sell the merch and they make more off the merch than they do off their shows. Yeah, but here's the great thing is that that merch, you know, like some there are people in Russia buying Greg Proop's merch. Right. Yeah, which is fantastic. You know, it's so great. Um, uh, yeah, it's so different. And I often think I, I wake up like this. This used to be my impression of Pete Best waking up every morning. You know, Pete Best. Hey, the Beatles. Yeah, this used to be my impression of Pete Best waking up every morning. Oh, fuck, 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 fuck. <laughs> and that's how I wake up every morning thinking about social media. I'm like, God damn it! If in my twenties. If there was social media when I was just constantly creating and constantly coming up with sketches and little videos and things, all, all the stuff that, you know, none of us could do anything with, I'd just be spewing that stuff all over the place and having the time of my life. Now, you co-directed the movie. The uh, Aristocrats? Yeah. Now, yes, I, I directed it okay. and produced it, but I always like to say... It was a co-creation. Now, have you done any forays into the movie or documentary stuff since then, or is there any plans yes, for you to do it? Yes, but let me ask you something. If you run a movie studio and you saw The Aristocrats, would you hire me for anything? Well, no, you know what? I, <laughs> but see, The Aristocrats is a perfect thing for like a Netflix. Because, it, put, it, put it this way, the way movies and TV are is, you know what? It's all going to it's all going to this stuff. It's yeah, all going well, to Netflix. It's all going to... I mean, I had, I had uh, Sean Ryan on last week, who's the creator of the shield well his latest show is now called mad dogs which me and joanne watched three episodes the other night it's on amazon uh, they went to amazon yeah because people are going because they're going you know what we can do whatever we want you can do yeah. whatever you want on these things yeah you know what i was watching the state of the union address and obama was talking about creating 14 million new jobs and i was like i can't get one of them yeah <laughs> seriously i can't get one of them uh no but here's the thing is that i i uh you know i went down that road after after the aristocrats some people were like well this is a guy who knows comedy let's bring him in to you know talk about this you know dopey you know i i i don't even want to reference right anything as an example but you know the, the typical schlocky kind of kind of comedy thing and um uh I, I was out of my element that's not my thing and you know i i, I can't go into a room with you know a um uh, with a storyboard and this is my approach to the thing so you just you know so i end up just coming up with my own projects and i've been working on one now for a while that is very challenging um do you know andy andrist no andy andrist is a comedian out of uh, oregon uh portland area uh, and he was one of the Doug Stanhope unbookables. Boy, Stanhope's getting a lot of screen time here. I'm mentioning him more than I know, anything. God. <laughs> uh, uh, he was one of the unbookables, and um, he's had a very interesting life. But as it turns out, Stan, uh, Andy had been um, molested as a child, uh, 12, 13 years old, 
and uh, for over a period of like every summer for like four or five years. And uh, it was rattling around in his brain and really screwing him up. And he felt like it was it was the source of a lot of difficulties that he has created for himself in life. So he decided that he would track down his abuser and confront him. And uh, that's on tape. Him tracking him down and going to confront him is on tape. And so I'm doing a documentary around all of that, around this this um, this idea of how do you deal with what happened, okay. and how do you deal with it in a way that empowers you. Uh, and so it's very touchy. It's about real serious stuff, but it's dark and it's hilarious uh, because I think that's a voice that is not present in that discussion. Which is that, you know, how do you be creative with this if your if your particular form of individual therapy is comedy? Right. And how do you get people to accept that you're talking about this very serious subject in what some people perceive as a frivolous light? Uh, so it's a fascinating, fascinating story, and um, ain't easy to get money for. <laughs> <laughs> now, are you, were you drawn to that project because it was somewhat difficult yes. and challenging? Yes. Instead of sitting there going, hey, I'm going to do a documentary about some guy who juggles and the reason no, he juggles. No. I mean, did you sit there and go, when you heard the story, did, you, did, you, did it click in your mind? It that you clicked said, in I my mind. It. That's exactly what happened. It, when, when, first of all, I've known Andy for a long time and uh, love him. And um, he, it just clicked in my mind that this is a fascinating story. And it was very clear to me. You know, we all know people who have, who have suffered from this kind of thing. And, um, uh, uh, you know, Call Me Lucky has, you know, as it gets into uh, Barry Crimmins' uh, history with all that, it gets, it gets very, very heavy and very morose. And the funny, the weird thing about this experience with Andy is that it was hilarious from moment one of him telling me about it to today he's hilarious about it and it just struck me looking at, at everything through the lens of a comedian it struck me as well this is something that you don't really see and it's valuable because you know it would probably be inspirational for all first of all it talks about you know say something you know don't keep it bottled up but also it it's about that this doesn't have to be a miserable thing in your life you can turn it into something positive you can turn it into something creative you can turn it into something inspiring um um and uh and then as i went down that road i found more and more comedians who were talking about what happened to them uh, and, um, and some of them very high profile you know i don't know if you've ever read billy billy Connolly's book but you know the very beginning of it is about his his childhood which in which he suffered some abuse roseanne barr uh, i mean i can go on right. for hours picking names like this and i just thought there's a there's a paradigm there there's a way of taking your victimization and turning it into something else through comedy and nobody seems to be even mentioning that <laughs> in fact when comics do it they have tough times with audiences they're like you can't you know you're making fun of something very serious or whatever uh, uh and so it did strike me immediately that wow through the lens of comedy this is a beautiful thing to focus on and it's very sincere and it's very heartfelt and it's not at all trivializing it's just okay you know do you want to i just think it'd be interesting to tackle this subject and have an audience laughing 
about it. So how do you go about making a documentary about that? Because I'm figuring that out. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> because I mean, that's it is, why it's taken so yeah, long. I mean, it is. I mean, it's one of those things that you sit there and sometimes start going down a certain path and go, okay, I got it, I got it, I got it, and you go, oh crap, it's not going. <laughs> to I mean, do you go through? I mean, is there? Is there? It sounds like some. As I said, you you have. There's a be, lot of big ideas in there. You know, this is what happened with the aristocrats too. Is that we had hundreds of hours of nonlinear footage of people just riffing around this joke and then talking about other stuff, talking about comedy, talking about personal stuff around the joke, whatever the case may be. But um, we didn't know what the hell that footage represented. We didn't know what was in there. We just knew we had a lot of funny stuff. But then as we started putting it together, as we started taking the funny stuff and putting it next to the stuff that was sort of explaining it or stuff that contrasted against it, as we started putting these things next to each other, other ideas started to emerge. Ideas about censorship, ideas about craft, ideas about community, ideas about show business, ideas about personal vulnerabilities. So many big ideas started to emerge, and that's what drove the shape of the, of, of, of the movie. Uh, I don't know how apparent that is to any average viewer, but I know that that's what, what it was. Myself and Emery Emery were often like shocked, like, you know, wow, you know, this whole little section here is really about some heavy stuff, you know? Um, and that's what's happening with this as well. As I'm going through the footage and putting it together, bigger ideas are coming up, like, like uh, you know, this whole notion of, of victimization and, and victim power and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, by the way, follow us on Twitter. It's at WoodchipCheck. WoodchipCheck? Yeah, and the reason it's called WoodchipCheck right now, that's a working title. The reason it's called WoodchipCheck is because as I dug through Andy's story and started to talk to people that grew up with him, I found that there's the, the stuff going on around him that kind of makes his story pale in comparison. It involves his fam family members that were like ritualistically gang-raped in a satanic ritual and, and an entire school of kids that were fingered by their principal under the ostensible uh, reason, the ostensible reason being that the kids had this long, you know, they had a, a long jump pit right. filled with wood chips, and the president, uh, the uh, president, <laughs> that'd be funny, yeah. the principal uh, of the school would come down and have everybody bend over the pommel horse, and he'd check their assholes to make sure they didn't have any, any wood chip checks stuck up there. And it went on for like a couple of years until the story broke and the guy ended up doing like a month in jail or something ridiculous. But this is the town that Andy grew up right. in. So that's what I'm telling you is as I go down this road, all kinds of these huge ideas and stories started to emerge. So it's going to be very, very interesting. But this is one of my philosophies of comedy for what it's worth. Uh, um, I, I feel like, you know, you know in, in, in physics, work has a very specific definition. It's exerting a force on something and changing its momentum or direction. They actually, you know, a force that pushes this from here to there. That's work. And I always feel like there's an equivalent in comedy, which is where if you can take something that is inherently unfunny and make it funny, then you've really done something. You know, we can all find the funny stuff that's funny no matter what you do with it. It's just funny, you know. Uh, and then there's the dark stuff, the stuff that's unfunny that when you make that funny, I feel is always, you're, you're operating at another level there. Now, how do you make that funny and still be in tasteful and not offensive? Is that is that one of the things that you have to do? Because, well, I don't know the answer to that, first of all, but I do challenge the assumption. I don't think that something can be unfunny. It can be, I don't think that it, 
it has to be non-offensive to be funny. Okay. I mean, I think the aristocrats is proof of that. But the aristocrats is funny. I mean, but it's well, not. But it's, it's, but it's not like a taboo subject. I mean, that's the thing now with the taboo subjects. You know, you have to watch. I mean, the state of comedy is. You know, I always joke. I said this on stage one night because you know you can't make fun of someone who's heavy. But meanwhile. I'm legally blind in one eye. I have a crossed eye. It's fine to make fun of someone with that. And I'm thinking, mm-hmm. well, I'm thinking, well, what's the difference? Mine is an actual handicap. Mm-hmm. I can't help, but I was mm-hmm. born that way. Well, I think, I think, you know, my, my heart and Andy's heart and everybody else involved with the project. Big, big shout out to uh, Chris Castles, uh, as well as Doug Stanhope, who was uh, instrumental in uh, bringing it all together. Uh, um, you know, our hearts in a certain place. Our heart right. is not dismissive of the severity of this issue. I wasn't talking about your project. I was talking about certain taboo subjects. Well, I think that that, that, that this relates. I think it depends on intent. Intent is very, very, very important. You know, whether the intent be tied in with the fact that your audience knows you and they know that, that you're just kidding. Uh, you know, Carlin used to say that all the time. He used to say, in comedy, context is everything. But he said, context also includes what the audience knows about you when they bought the ticket right you know he said very few people come to my show who don't know what i'm all about so he never had a lot of those problems you know uh um you know intent does matter i mean 99 percent of what david tell says is absolutely offensive but it's absolutely hilarious right. because it's a tell you get dave yeah it's i mean that's yeah he's a brilliant the, he's a brilliant writer yeah and, and, and you and you expect that you, expect and you know something. that and you know that he's just a big teddy bear you know he's not a you know horrible person you know uh so that's a very ethereal question you've asked and the answer is, I don't know how this is going to play out, but I, but it's going to be compelling, and I guarantee you it's going to be funny, because there's already a ton of funny in it. Now, do you have any idea when it will be done? <sighs> Talking to some, some money people right now, trying to raise a little bit um, to, to focus on it and finish, but um, I hope. I hope that it's done within the year, but it's been held up for some financial reasons, and it's been held up uh, based on the fact that I have been working so hard to get a TV deal on Setlist. I'm all in on it, so my focus has been a little bit, uh, a little bit preoccupied. We have a few minutes left. Are, are you doing stand-up anymore? I am every once in a while, but I, I. I I, I, this is an interesting situation. This is a second podcast we should do, actually, because I, I think you'll find this fascinating. But after having been doing set lists for so long and having been going down the roads I've gone down as a, as a filmmaker and, and as, a, as a theater director and, and all that sort of stuff, I, I, I'm unclear of my voice. So it's hard for me to commit to you know, doing an hour or an hour and 15 uh, a full show of stand-up because I'm not exactly sure what the hell I want to say anymore. That you know that happens to a lot of people. It's like I remember Kathy Ladman was on the show, and you know she was doing her one woman show about the weight problem when she did uh yes those, right those jokes on Craig Ferguson right. I think people were like, whoa, 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 you can't talk about anorexia yeah. And I think as comics get older, I think they do not their their voices change because it's the old thing. You know what works. I mean, you know, you could go and do some of your old stuff yeah. and it would kill. But I think you sit there and go. I don't want to be a band who's playing, you know. Yeah, I'm not a, interested a, a, in yeah, and a Jersey Shore guy who's playing Brown Eyed Girl and every you know show. I know that if I if I if I focused in on on really finding that one hour, one hour and a half of of you know what I really want to say, I know that some of that stuff will drift back in because right. I'm still connected to it in a certain way. But I also feel like uh, um, 
I need, I just feel like I have a, a clean piece of paper here and I should, you know, I should move forward rather than, than backward. I think you should start doing set lists more. I think you're right. I think I, mean, I should. I mean, how how simple? I mean, that would stimulate. You're afraid well, you of it. I'll tell you what. Of it. I do have a fear of it. Every comedian has a fear. If you don't have a fear of it, you suck as a comic. But um, um, here's the thing: is that where it's driving me is it's driving me towards forgetting about everything but just funny. And I, you know, when I first started doing stand up, when I didn't have I, I didn't have a clear voice of any kind. Uh, what I did was just take things that were funny, make you know, just write the jokes, right. make the funny bits out of stuff I thought was funny, regardless of what it means, how it resonated, any of that sort of stuff. Does it, does it, does it have any real substance? I, it was just find the funny, and then eventually over time. I started to get a sense of why I was finding a lot of this stuff funny and why would I find certain things funny and, and get a whole bunch of things that are kind of in the same arena, find them all funny. Well, that speaks to something else. And then I would find, I, I could actually reverse engineer exactly what, the way I look at the world. Right. So I think I have to do that the same thing again, which is just just find funny shit and well, stop thinking about the you know the meaning and the substance and all that stuff. But it, it it's tough at the age I'm at to uh um it's like picasso said when he picasso was invited for some like anniversary whatever he was invited to a um an event that uh life magazine staged they went to spain the little town that he was painting in at the time and they took him to a little they took him to a children's school and they had him finger paint with the children that was their photo spread was picasso finger painting with children kind of cool right and they said to him how it must be odd for you to be a, a painter of your stature, finger painting with little kids. And he said, when I was their age, I was painting like Rembrandt. It's right. taken me this long to figure out how to paint that like them now. That's true. Right? That's true. Well, you sit there, and it's a thing. We, we all have this fear, and we sit there, and it's the whole thing. I mean, comics, we want to get a left. And that's the one thing now. It's like you sit there and you go, because oh, I've done that when you know you know a bit's going to work and you're trying something new. Yeah. And all of a sudden you're going, oh, shit, that's not laughing. Well, I'm going to do a complete opposite segue yeah. to shit that makes no sense and yeah. go, hey, uh, Duh, duh, duh. And then you get the laugh back. It's just, it's a confidence yeah. Well, thing. you know, that's one of the techniques that I used to have when I, when I, whenever you, you know, because you go through these fallow periods where you're not really writing that much and you've honed a lot of stuff or, you know, so you haven't really focused on writing, whatever the case may be. Uh, when I, whenever I was in those periods, I would always mix it up somehow. Like I would, I, I would give myself little tasks every time I went on stage. I'd say, today I'm going to put two things together that I've never put together for before. And that was like incredibly fertile. Just going like this bit about, you know, flying and this bit about my mother i've never done them next to each other before i'm going to try and get from one to the other and that was incredibly fertile territory so I, i've always been you know i've always been one of those people who's tried to shake it up keep it from getting boring well you keep it a good and, you, and you're always changing up you know you got yeah. a lot of stuff going on yeah we got to wrap up soon now now can we still find the green room yeah, the green room. You can see uh, all fourteen episodes. Uh, you can uh, stream them on Amazon. Okay, because it was such a good show. Thank you. Yeah, it was, it uh, was, I'm working on getting it back up, and and um, in the process of uh, there's actually some very positive uh, positive events happening around that. Maybe moving forward with that again, but I, uh, I'm not done with that show. I loved that. I good. loved doing it. It's like hanging out with comics. It's like the, exactly. it's the simplest, right? Um, uh, so you can see them all streaming on Amazon here in America. Uh, they're also uh, piecemeal. They're all over YouTube illegally. 
Um, and I want people to see them. So, you know, if you have a couple of bucks, go to YouTube. It's like 99 cents an episode to stream it. If you don't, watch it for free on YouTube and spread the word. Now, give all your social media stuff. Twitter, at Paul Provenza. Uh, Facebook, Paul Provenza Comedian. Uh, that's it. Okay, that's it. Well, <laughs> go check his work out. You know, it's 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 a guy. Well, follow at Setlist Show as well on Twitter. At Setlist Show. At follow Setlist at, Show. And see what's uh, going on. And go yeah. to your city and see it. If it's there, go see one. Okay. And people follow me on Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. I always tweet. I'm always trying to tweet good stuff. Go to my website, CooperTalk.net. It's CooperTalk.net. There's over 468 episodes of my show where you can also email me, Cooper at CooperTalk.net. Also, uh, my my cookbook. StopTheSalt.com. Remember, I went through that health problem. It's 120 recipes, easy recipes, no pictures to intimidate you, no major ingredients, just easy cooking for one and to eat healthy because you don't want to go through what I went through because the hospital sucks. So you can get it on Amazon or Barnes and Noble, or you can get it at my website, StopTheSalt.com, where I make more money. I make more money off that, and I will sign it for you. So it's by the way, making more money alone helps your blood pressure. Exactly, right? Then you don't worry about that. And also, don't forget the CafeValet.com. It's a new sponsor. It is a great. It's a great. uh, It's a great coffee maker. It's coffee making for one. It's the kind you have in the hotels. And comics know that we all know those coffee makers. You slide it right in. So go there. Go to their website, CafeValet.com. Get the starter pack. It's regularly uh twenty five dollars. It's the brewer and ten coffee packs. Regularly twenty five. You put Cooper in. C-O-O-P-E-R. You don't have to do it in caps. Just put Cooper in and you save five bucks. So check that out and keep checking uh, my show out. Check Paul Provenza out. Check Setlist out. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins. I will talk to you guys next week.